Surely the Jewish people is no less deserving than other peoples. Are the Arabs responsible for that problem? Have they acted or worked or helped in creating such a problem? The Jewish people were your allies in the war and joined their sacrifices to yours to achieve a common victory. Hello again and welcome to Israel-Palestine Behind the Headlines with... Alec and Ezra. Today we have an amazing episode on UNRWA and the Palestinian refugees. Is justice compatible with peace? Ooh. Who do we got on the show today, Ez? Well, today we have Dr. Enot Wilf, a former parliamentarian, and Dr. Mustafa Elostaz. Mm. Be a good one. Oh, yeah. Good. Oh, it's going to be great. Yeah. So today we're going to start off. We're going to give a little more history. We like to give a little history before we jump into things. History is key. So to understand UNRWA and the Palestinian refugees, there's a few important things that we have to get to. So during the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948, approximately 700,000 to 800,000 Palestinians were displaced from their homes. There is large debate into the manner of which this occurred, fleeing versus expulsion. Many PhDs have been done on the subject, and many, many books have been written. There will be an entire episode focused on this at a later time. Because of the refugee situation, a separate and unique UN effort, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA, was created to carry out direct relief and works programs for the displaced Palestinians. It runs schools and provides food, health care, and other social services to Palestinian refugees in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. UNRWA's official definition of a Palestinian refugee is persons whose normal place of residence was Palestine during the period June 1, 1946 to May 15, 1948, and who lost both home and means of livelihood as a result of the 1948 conflict. The descendants of Palestinian refugee males, including legally adopted children, are also eligible for registration. Thus, according to UNRWA, descendants of the refugees will also have refugee status. This places the number of refugees in the millions. UNRWA states, Today, some 5 million Palestinian refugees are eligible for UNRWA services. These descendants are now throughout the world, including, but not limited to, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, West Bank, Gaza, U.S., Canada, Europe. The core of the issue is whether the Palestinian refugees have a right to return to their ancestral homes or their equivalent within modern-day Israel. This is a very difficult issue because if there is a full right of return, including the descendants of refugees, then there would no longer be a Jewish majority in the state of Israel. Many Israelis say the Arabs started the war, they must live with consequences, and that at the same time there were approximately 700,000 and 800,000 Jews displaced from Arab countries, so it was more an exchange of populations. Thus, from Israel's perspective, peace cannot occur with a full right of return. This is in contradiction to the great majority of Palestinians that see this as justice and a non-negotiable right. They don't see any comprehensive solution without giving the full right of return to all of the Palestinian refugees. To reconcile this, previous initiatives have proposed a full right of return, but in the future Palestinian state, West Bank and Gaza, and a limited and symbolic right of return of some refugees to Israel. Recently, this was in the news as President Trump and the State Department decided to make some changes with UNRWA. They announced that the U.S. would cut all of its approximately $364 million of funding to UNRWA, calling it a, quote, irredeemably flawed operation, end quote. The PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, has called this move cruel and irresponsible. 
All right. It's a lot to chew on. So you guys chew on that for a chew little on bit. That. And a little bit, and we'll we're going to dive guess. right into it. Yeah. Beyond the headlines. So today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ana Wilf. Uh, in addition to a BA from Harvard University, an MBA from INSEAD in France, and a PhD in political science from the University of Cambridge, she is a former member of the Knesset for the Labor Party. She was a member of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, chair of the Education, Sports, and Culture Committee, as well as chair of the Knesset Subcommittee for Israel and the Jewish People. She was an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy uh, Institute, foreign policy advisor to Vice Prime Minister, Shimon Perez, and a strategic consultant with McKinsey & Company. She has also authored several books. So, Anand, first of all, thank you very much for being on the podcast. So, given your expertise on the subject, it would be great if you could give us an overview of their duties, UNRWA, what they do, and, you know, who, who is UNRWA? Who is it comprised of? So, UNRWA is an organization that was established in the wake of the 1948 war uh, to take care of the Arabs who were replaced by the war at the time they were not yet called Palestinians, uh, and uh, to find them a solution in the places to which they have fled, which was basically Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, uh, and the Gaza Strip. At the time, this was not unique to have a special agency for refugees in a conflict. This happened, for example, in Korea as well. There was an organization called ANCRA. And the assumption was that this would be a limited time operation for a few years. The refugees would be rehabilitated and settled in place. Uh, a lot of money was assigned in order to create big public uh, projects, to give the money to the Arab countries, to Jordan, to Syria, to Lebanon, to Egypt, to help them through these public works to um, assimilate and absorb the Arab refugees. We need to remember they were of the same ethnic group uh, for a very long time. Arabs who lived in the area called Palestine were actually considered Southern Syrians. They were of the same ethnic group as the majority of Jordanians. So the thinking was they would be easily absorbed, uh, assimilated, and uh, UNRWA would be disbanded within a few short years, as happened, by the way, with UNCRA. Within a few short years, the refugees from the Korea War were settled, and we do not have today a single refugee from the Korea War. We do have today more than 5 million refugees that are registered as such by UNRWA. And the answer to why 70 years after a war ended, we have people who claim to be refugees from Palestine and even have a UN agency that registers them as such, is really not to be found in the war itself. There is nothing unique in the war. The question of how many were expelled and how many fled and what happened when will not give you the answer. There was nothing particularly cruel or particularly violent in that war when you compare it to the wars of the 1940s, of the 1950s, of the 60s, the millions and tens of millions of refugees, of displaced people, of people who were forcibly displaced as borders were created, states emerged. Now, UNRWA at the beginning really had good intentions. It was funded by the U.S. and the U.K., and the people who led it were British and American people who really brought their expertise from the New Deal in order to do public works in the Arab world. But within a couple of years, they begin to send messages back that say, 
This is not happening. The Arab world refuses to cooperate. No matter how much money, no matter the good intentions, there is zero cooperation. And the US and the UK want to close down UNRWA. They're like, it's not working, there's no use. And at this moment, the Arab world basically tells the US and the UK, do not do it. This will be a grave error and you will pay a high price in the Arab world for that error. And it's from that moment on, and essentially to the present, that the US, the UK, and the Western world started funding UNRWA automatically. Not as a short-term operation, but it's still officially temporary organization, but they automatically renew its mandate every two to three years, and it's really a bribe. The thinking in American and Western policy circles was basically, we'll pay this money to the Arab world in order, if they consider it such a key issue, let's leave it and we'll pay the money. And this is how we arrive at today, 2018, with more than 5 million people registered as refugees. Most of them, by the way, were not the originals displaced by war. They are descendants. And by any international standard, we should know that at the time, the beginning of the 50s, the end of the 40s, another UN agency is established to deal with all refugees in the world. It's called the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And it has a very clear mandate to individually solve the problem of each individual refugee by whichever means necessary. There is no such thing for the UNHCR, there is no such thing for refugees in any conflict, in any situation, as a right to return. It doesn't exist. Arabs will tell you that it's a fundamental human right. It's not fundamental, and it's not a human right. It does not exist as a right anywhere. If at the end of a conflict it's possible, then it's done. But it's not a right. The UNHCR ends the status of refugees by whichever means necessary. So by their standards, almost none of the Palestinians would qualify as refugees. Of the 5.3 million, 2.2 live in the West Bank and Gaza. Consider that for a minute. There are 2.2 million Palestinians, vast majority of whom never displaced an inch. The vast majority don't even live in what we call refugee camps, which are no longer camps. They're neighborhoods, and they look like many neighborhoods in the Arab world. 75% of those registered as refugees in the West Bank don't live in refugee neighborhoods. They are middle-class lawyers living in Ramallah. Now think of it. If you're a 30-year-old man, middle-class lawyer, you were born in Ramallah, and you're a refugee from Palestine, what Palestine exactly are you refugee from if you live in Ramallah? From their perspective, it's clear. It's Palestine from the river to the sea. It's the Palestine that will one day exist instead of Israel. The other 2.2 million, another 40%, are citizens of Jordan. Jordan actually did assimilate the Arab refugees. <clears throat> Jordan did want to end the war with Israel, which is why it didn't demand return. The one country that wanted to sign a peace agreement with Israel based on the ceasefire lines was Jordan, which is why Jordan didn't demand return. So Jordan gave them citizenship. This is why the Arab refugees murdered, assassinated, King Abdallah, and ever since, the Jordanians are touchy on this issue. But they are citizens of Jordan. 82% don't live in refugee neighborhoods. They are wealthy business people in Amman. 
They're not refugees by any international standards. People who are citizens of a country are not refugees. Then we have another million who are registered in Syria and Lebanon. We know from Arab census that the numbers are inflated. Uh, just to get a sense, the multimillionaire playboy, father of Bella and Gigi Hadid, the supermodels mm -hmm. living in LA, is still registered by UNRWA in Syria as a refugee from Palestine. Hmm. Probably the only ones that would be recognized as refugees by international standards are 20 to 30,000 people who were the original ones who crossed an internationally recognized border, unlike those who fled to the West Bank and Gaza. They did not get citizenship. Syria and Lebanon refused to give them citizenship. And even they, had they been treated according to international standards, would have long been resettled now in Canada or Sweden and no longer considered refugees. So kind of along the lines of talking about UNRWA, recently it was in the headlines that President Trump decided to cut all funding for UNRWA from the U.S. Do you see this as a positive step? And I guess as a follow-up, do you also see this as the U.S., does this remove the U.S. as an accepted mediator in the region from the eyes of the Arab world? So it's very important that this is finally rising to the international agenda. The problem is that it can't be about money. The way it happened with the President Trump defunding the organization is that the story became about money. Okay, America's not going to give money. Who will give money? And you have the EU and Germany, of all places, and yeah. Ireland just rushing to replace America and to give the money. And the thing is that it's not about the money. I mean, people and countries can give money to the Palestinians if they wish to. Question is, why give the money through an organization that perpetuates this idea that Palestine from the river to the sea will one day be Arab and the Jews will no longer have their state? Why tie the provision of health and education services to the idea that a middle-class lawyer living in Ramallah is a refugee from Palestine. So for me, the American defunding of UNRWA, it's critical that it not become a missed opportunity where the discussion is just about money and whether that will create chaos. But it has to be an opportunity to raise this issue to the international agenda and to explain why indeed UNRWA is irredeemable because it's not about this or that problem with the organization. Its very structure, its very purpose is about keeping alive the idea that the war is not over. And how can this work with the promotion of peace when you have an organization that keeps alive the idea that the war is still going on. So kind of taking a step back and looking at more of kind of a humanistic approach, not a political approach, but individual level, it seems as though many Israelis have a get over it attitude when it comes to the refugee issue, stemming from Jewish refugeehood throughout history and particularly with respect to Jewish refugees following the Holocaust and Jewish refugees from Arab lands. Do you agree with this take? And I guess more importantly, do you think there is a void in empathy that needs to be filled from the Israeli side with regards to this? And or how can that be filled? 
The problem with the Israel in global discussion of Palestinian refugees or the idea of return is that we are keenly aware that there is nothing innocent about this discussion. The get over it attitude was the global attitude. It's not an Israeli attitude. India, Pakistan, millions lost their home. The message by both India and Pakistan to the refugees was get over it because both India and Pakistan knew that if any one of them would demand return, there would be war. The 12 million Germans who were displaced into Germany, the message of Germany to those Germans was get over it. And Germans who called for return were sidelined as crazy people who will reopen war in Europe. So generally throughout the world, the message with refugees is once you have a new place, get over it. The problem with the Palestinian refugees is not the lack of empathy. I can completely understand the sadness, the longing of an individual who lost their home in war. But first, we need to remember that the Arabs were not an innocent party that was passively sitting by. They were an active side to the war a war that they at least declared was a war that intended to prevent the Jewish people from having their state. So from our perspective, they were waging a war of annihilation. So we're pleased that they're lost. So it's not some innocent, you compared it to the Jews. The Jews were actually innocent. The Jews were not a party to the war anywhere, and yet they were displaced and much worse. The Arabs were not an innocent party. They are a party to the war. They bear responsibility for the consequences of that war. But in their telling, their becoming refugees is not a normal consequence of a war that you waged and lost. It is some evil conspiracy against innocent bystanders. When the war was lost, return was born as a means to say the war is not over. We do not accept the consequences. So we understand that there is a vast gulf between the individual desire of people to return and the way that the right of return was framed as a means to ensure that the Jewish people will not have sovereignty. And this is why it's difficult to have empathy. Because whereas people might talk about it in humanitarian terms, in longing for a lost home, the structure, the concept of the right of return was purely a war-like structure. And I guess as a last question, I think because we're talking about the refugee issue, I think it's necessary to do justice to UN Resolution 194, which says resolves that the refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practical date. A lot of people, especially in BDS, they refer to Resolution 194 in the UN as something necessary and that it's basically the UN said it, so it's justification. So Resolution 194 does not give Palestinians an inalienable, perpetual right of return to their homes. The resolution in its entirety calls for making peace with Israel. The resolution, which Arabs conveniently forget, was rejected by all the Arab countries because it was considered, even in its extreme form, to legitimize Israel, which they refused to do. So this is a classic strategy of Arabs at the UN. They reject a resolution, 
because it legitimizes Israel. Then they take one element for the resolution, number 11, the one that says that refugees wishing to return in peace, which was clearly not the case at the time, but Arabs ignore the fact that they rejected the resolution, ignore the entire context which they rejected of making peace with Israel. They take one element, 11, they give it the most extreme interpretation, which was never intended and which is nowhere there, that Palestinians for generations in perpetuity, regardless of their intentions, have an inalienable right to return to Israel when they demand it. That is nowhere there. So as we seek to make peace, and it's important for me to mention that, I do all of this as a peacemaker because I believe that the role of a peacemaker has changed. Being a peacemaker is not about going into the room and negotiating. That's the tail end part. Everyone focuses on that. Who will shuttle between the capitals? Can we get Israelis and Palestinians into the room? That's the last part. We need to create the environment. Peacemaking is about creating an environment where the chances of an agreement are greatly enhanced. And increasing the chances of an agreement means that Jews internalize that they're not going to have all of it. And by and large, we got it. And Arabs internalize that they're not going to have all of it. And none of them have it. You will not find a single Arab Palestinian who will say, we get it. There will be no return, never, ever, for no one. You never hear people saying, Arabs saying, all we want is a state in the West Bank and Gaza, and we understand that the deal on the table is sovereignty in exchange for return. Mm. This is the deal. And the world needs to begin to be clear on that. Rather than coddling the Palestinians, being afraid of telling them that there will be no return, serious peacemakers who are serious about peace need to say with the same passion and intensity that they fight against settlements and tell the Jews that they can't have all this, they need to bring the same passion and intensity and clarity to the issue of return and to tell Arab Palestinians, you are not refugees and there is no such thing as a right of return. We are willing to support you if you want to fight for an independent state in the West Bank and Gaza, but as long as you prefer, as long as your primary goal is return, is Palestine from the river to the sea, we are not going to support that in any way, shape, or form. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for very your much. Vast sure. knowledge. Yes. Thank you. A lot. My pleasure. I would now like to introduce Dr. Mostafa Elostaz, Department Head of Human Rights and International Law at the All Kids Bard College. So to start out, I would just like to get your opinion on the recent Trump cuts to UNRWA. And I guess along with that, is Palestinian faith shaken even more in the U.S. as a neutral mediator, or is it so far lost at this point that it doesn't even matter? Thank you for doing this interview. I think it's a complex issue in terms of what Trump is doing. In terms of what the, how the Palestinians are viewing it, this is creating a confirmation that the U.S. is not a neutral mediator, has never been a neutral mediator, and this is a step that confirms this. Also, I think many Palestinians and probably many Palestinian members of the leadership see this as a, an arm-twisting move for the Palestinians 
to have some concessions to enter into or re-enter the negotiations without any preconditions. Preconditions or certain agreements that started 20, over 20 years ago. So this is, uh, is, is very problematic and uh, since the U.S. funds a large portion of UNRWA, it's going to cause a lot of problems. My fear at this stage is the impact of the loss of these funds that could have on the Palestinians in the refugee camps and far-reaching impact on the countries that host these refugees. We didn't see this coming. I was actually thought that the refugee problem was more important than the Jerusalem issue. So I think it's to be seen how difficult things will turn for the Palestinians and what the reaction will be. All right, and then going off that, just kind of going back to the beginning, you know, we have two different definitions of refugees. We have the UN High Commission for Refugees, which is how the UN treats refugees from all other conflicts. And then we have the UNRWA, which is the refugees from the 48 war and their descendants. Do you agree with the fact that there are two different systems? And if so, why? Well, I don't think it matters whether I agree with it or not. This is a, a system that was established by the United Nations. What's really interesting to think about in this case is that UNRWA was established before the definition for refugees by UNRWA was established before the definition for the refugees under the United Nations Commission for Refugees. But what I find really curious in this case is the lack of action to integrate Palestinians under the second organization created later. And why were they kept under UNRWA? Was this intentional or unintentional? I'm not really sure. I, I don't know. But I think it definitely had a negative impact on both the Palestinians and the Israelis. They both have to face the outcome of this, I would call it, debacle. Do you think that they should have been resettled in the lands where they went to during the time of the war? Well, whether they should have been resettled or not, that's a different issue. The issue here is, for most of the time when refugees leave and conflict is concluded, refugees are allowed to return back to their homes. And if you look at the uh, UNRWA resolutions and mm-hmm. the UN resolutions, it doesn't mention the return of refugees to a certain country. Mm-hmm. It just mentions to their homes. Mm-hmm. It's possible that had they been resettled, the refugees would have accepted it. But at this point, it's hard to tell. I think they were given a false hope for a long time by allowing the conditions that they lived under to carry on and on and on for over 70 years now. And do you think it's too late now to integrate UNRWA into the larger UN body, or you still think that that's possible? I, I don't know if it's too late or not. I, I really don't know. The interesting thing about the question of refugees is that it, you need to deal with it on two different levels. One is with the Palestinian refugees themselves and what they want, what they would like to see as a solution, and then also involve the Palestinian leadership to how they would like to see this issue resolved. I personally think that it's so complicated at this point, nobody knows what to do with it. There's also got to be willingness when you resettle refugees. Other countries have to be willing to resettle them in their own countries. So now we're dealing with issues of sovereignty and economic capacities. You see how things happened with the uh, Syrian refugees. There was a lot of rejection of welcoming these refugees, and Turkey decided to take them in at a certain price, because the, Europe- the Europeans didn't want to take them. Germany took about one million, I think, or over a, yeah. a bit over a million, but the rest of Europe did not. The U.S. didn't take much. Canada didn't take much. So it's 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 a very tricky question. Though I have to tell you, most Palestinian refugees that I'm aware of, and I'm really surprised by this. When you ask them, "Are you interested in going back?" they all say yes. The ones I know. But then you have to give them certain definitions of what that means to go back. Are they going back to Israel? Are they going back to Palestine? And that shifts the way of thinking about it. So 
both states have to be informed and both and, and the refugees themselves have to be informed of this outcome of return what it means to return right okay are they returning to palestine or are they returning to israel or are they just returning to their village okay does the return mean if they own some land some small piece of land we don't want to assume it's a big piece of land and now there is a museum on it do they does that mean they want this museum to be removed or they want some kind of acknowledgement of the fact that this land belonged to them and this museum is sitting on a land that belonged to a Palestinian. So these are very complex issues. And as a person who's been involved in the, in the Geneva Initiative, and especially on the issue of refugees, these, these become very complex issues. And they, they go beyond the technical issues, actually. They go to the emotional, personal stories of, of the people involved in this. If I remember correctly, I thought that the Geneva Initiative approach was interesting in that they coupled the price and the settlements that would be be abandoned, they would attribute that to the refugees from the forty-eight war as a means of reparations. reparations. Yeah, you really have to uh, look at the document yeah, because it's it's about. it's the way the compensation would be done, and that doesn't mean it's actually agreed upon. It's mm-hmm. it's a model agreement. Yeah, it's yeah. a model agreement. Yeah. There are different kinds of compensations. One is for refugeehood. One for property. One for uh, community rehabilitations of refugee areas. If Israel decides to leave certain settlements and the Palestinians decide to take it over, they would estimate the cost of these settlements and probably deduct it from some of these uh, compensation amounts that were supposed to be paid for the refugees. To kind of shift gears a little bit, many Israelis have this kind of get-over attitude. When they talk about the refugees, the Palestinian refugees, they'll say, this is what happened in war. You know, Palestinians were an innocent party. They started the war. This is what happens. Deal with it. Get over it. What would you say to Israelis to help them see it from the Palestinian perspective? <laughs> I would say, <laughs> and I hope this is not taken in, in a way that's anti-Semitic. I'd say get over it yourself. You have never gotten over it your own miseries. The thing about these miserable situations, they become so personal, we refuse to see the suffering of the other person. And we always assume that our suffering is much greater than the suffering of other people. Now, I do acknowledge that Jews probably have suffered, not probably, according to my own readings, my own studies, the discussions I have with my students. Jews were probably the group of people that suffered the most in history, okay? Does that give us an excuse to say to Palestinians, get over your suffering? Oh, these things are very personal. It's part of your identity, part of who you are. I think part of the problem is this continuous denial of the things that took place in the past and they're not being acknowledged. I'll give you an example. There's always this assumption that the Arabs wanted to kick the, Israel, the, the Jews out and throw them into the sea. But really, when you look at the story from a different narrative, you see maybe a different story. The Palestinians don't see it this way. The Palestinians see it as if the Arabs came in to defend them, and they failed because they were being kicked out by the Israelis and the Jews in this area. I think we probably all at one point have to give over our suffering, but we have to do it with, uh, I think, compassion. Kind of building off that, considering that the Islamic concept of peace is closely related with justice, and for a lot of Palestinians, they see the right of return as the true form of complete justice, and they don't see any kind of agreement without justice. Is there anything else that could be done to help them feel that justice has been served or to help them 
shift their view into what justice would be. For example, the president of Israel, Reuben Rivlin, visited a village, Kafir Qasim, where there was an Arab massacre in the 50s. And he showed solidarity with them, acknowledged this happened, we're very sorry. So do you think if you know there were sincere efforts on the part of, I mean, I guess the only thing you'd see it would be the, from, from the government of, we're sorry, terrible things happened, we know you suffered, would that be something that you think could make a difference? I think it's more complex than this. I personally am interested in seeing genuine peace between nations and people and governments, okay? I don't want a cold peace between the Palestinians and Israelis. Yes, I think one of the problems we've continuously faced is this complete lack of acknowledgement of the past events that happened, okay? And I'd like to see personally, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how important I am in this whole equation, to see an acknowledgement by the Israeli government of what happened. But I also would like to see acknowledgement from the Palestinians about mistakes that were committed. Because my interest here in the, is in the civilian loss, the loss of innocent lives. But I also would like to take it further than that. I would like to see the people themselves acknowledge what happened in the past. Yes, I do acknowledge that I cannot pay for the crime of my father or my ancestors, but to create this sense of genuine peace between the two nations, we have to acknowledge the, the past mistakes. Now, it's not only it's not enough to actually acknowledge these, it's how do we fix it? Okay, the powerful has to help the weak. At least this is in my moral code. Me freeing you from your bondage is not enough. I have to give you a helping hand to stand on your feet after I've been putting you down for so long. And this is something that I see kind of lacking on the Israeli side. As I said earlier, we all like to play the role of the victim, okay? All along, let's be very clear about this. All along, from 48 to the present, Israel has always been the, the stronger party in this conflict. It's been internationally supported. Yes, maybe people on the street from different nations take the side of Palestinians, but when you think about governments and what they do, they're actually supportive of Israel. We have more governments uh, recognizing the state of Israel than recognizing the state of Palestine. And then the most important player in all of this, the United States, just deprived the Palestinians of this, what they would like to see as their capital, East Jerusalem. They're not even saying Jerusalem, they're saying East Jerusalem. So acknowledgement is important, and it's important for the Israelis. And I, I find acknowledgement by the stronger party to be more important than by the weaker party, because this shows goodwill. And I think once the Israelis are willing to do this, you'll find the Palestinians more than willing to work with them on a real, a really genuine peace agreement. Do you think the Palestinians as a people will ever accept not having a full right of return to their past homes in present-day Israel? That's a question I really cannot answer. I can tell you as a Palestinian refugee myself, my family lives abroad, my parents both passed away in Houston, do I ever think about coming back to uh, Majdal, Ashkelon? No, I don't. I have built my life outside of this place, outside of this region. I can't imagine my daughter wanting to come back here as a Palestinian refugee. There are cert certainly some people that want to go back to their villages, but what's the percentage of Palestinian refugees that would like to do this? I'm not sure. Is it possible that if they are giving this option, let's say Israel decides to declare, okay, Palestinian refugees, have the right to return home. Now the question is, are they all going to be willing to come home once they see the, the changed realities on the ground? But of course you take risks for this. Let's assume that Israel says, okay, you guys are welcome to come back home, and these refugees decide to come back home. That's a problem, I think, for Israelis. 
then you change the whole demographics of the of the country. So this these are the f- different factors that you have to think about. Uh, I think it's important for the Palestinians to at least have that option offered to them, and yet make it clear that there are other options, and let them choose. And that is where this becoming becomes a, a very problematic issue. Agree, very problematic issue. Thank you to all the participants. A big thank you to Michael Secular for all the sound editing, and we will see you all next time.